Hello, everyone. So tonight we are going to be in the book of Matthew. So we will be reading from Matthew 12. So excited to be here with everybody tonight and to dig into the word. And so again, we're in Matthew 12, and it'll be verses 1 through 21. And it's up on the screen if you need that. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy not and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench." until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey guys, notice the new stage. Yeah, I'm excited about it. You guys don't have to be. Hey, it is great to be with you all. Uh, if you don't know me, if I, we haven't met, my name is Jordan Coughlin. I uh, serve as the worship pastor here at Christ's Covenant. Um, my family and I uh, moved to Atlanta from the D.C. area in 2020, and actually back in that time, it was me and Jason Dees leading the young adult times, Tuesday nights, and then we left and it like quadrupled in size. So I don't know what that has to say about us other than we left it in the very capable hands of Thomas Nelson and Will Carlisle. Um, but guys, it is, it is not only so good to be here, but I just want to encourage you um, for being here. There's a lot of other things you could be doing on Tuesday night, and you being here says something about you, and, and hopefully it is encouraging to you. Uh, what, what a gathering like this represents or should communicate to you is that you're not alone in your faith. You don't have to live your Christian life lonely and isolated. But also, there's something great that unifies us together. More than 
what college you went to, more than whether you like pickleball or not, more than any other thing, it's the gospel. It's God. And so all of you, differing journeys, places, but you're coming here because you're interested in some level in the Lord. And the Lord promises to bless that. And uh, so I'm, I'm so excited to, to be here with you. Why don't I pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, Lord, we come to your word, uh, and we have to acknowledge that where there should be reverence and focus, um, for many of us, we come distracted and worried. Where there should be faith and anticipation, for many of us, there's anxiety and lack of faith. But Lord, we, we know that you are a merciful God, and we know that you speak to us through your word. And so, Lord, I, I pray and ask that you would do exactly that, that as we study your word for the next few minutes, that you would cause our hearts to burn, that we would see and behold Jesus, and as we just sang, that we would be still and, and know you and love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So two nights ago, my wife Tally and I uh, participated in the dating Q&A. Uh, how many, anybody there? You don't have to be ashamed. It was a great, it was a great time. Doesn't mean that you, you know, you're afraid you'll never get a date. It was hopefully helpful. Um, and if you weren't there, you missed a lot of great stuff. We said the three perfect questions for a date. No, we didn't. We didn't talk about that. We, we did talk about, though, like when you should kiss someone, when you should say, I love you. Uh, how do you know if they're the one or not? You know, lots of, lots of good topics. Um, but several of the questions were surrounding this idea of how you really get to know someone. That's a big question when it comes to dating, Right. You, you don't want to get into a dating relationship, Lord forbid, get married, and then discover something about your spouse that you didn't know, right? They're a drug addict. They have three kids. They were married four times before. Like that, that is information you need to know ahead of time, right? Nor do you want to project on someone an idea of who they are when they're really not that person. I don't, I'm sure none of you have ever done that, right? But you have an idea of, oh, this person could be this or should be this, and they constantly disappoint you. Why? Well, because your knowledge is not really based on reality. It's based upon your imagination. Maybe someone's done that to you, and you felt that from a guy or girl, where they're always trying to get you to be someone that you're actually not, and you keep trying to tell them, no, I really don't like Georgia. I'm not going to root for them. And yet they keep bringing you to Georgia thing, right? Knowledge, it's important. It, it's important in dating relationships. It's essential in our relationship with Jesus, do we truly know Jesus? Not, not just a caricature of Jesus, but Jesus as he's revealed himself to be in his word. Not just factual knowledge about Jesus, you know, where, where he was born, where he died, a couple things about his life, but 
experiential knowledge of Jesus? Do, do you have a knowledge of Jesus that leads to a different life, a transformed life, one that doesn't make sense unless you truly know Jesus? That's the question that all of us have to ask of ourselves. Now, tonight, we get to spend a few minutes together considering who Jesus is. Now, if you've been coming to Tuesday nights, from what I hear, you've been in the book of Matthew, which is awesome. You've been talking about who Jesus is, which also is awesome. So just consider this like part, whatever, eight, nine, whatever you're in, uh, of this study of who Jesus is, because it's the most important relationship that you'll ever have in your life. More important than who you're going to marry, more important than your family. It's, it's the relationship that determines all of who you are. And so we're going to look at who Jesus is. So it's you, it's me, a couple hundred friends, and, and this other person named Matthew. All right? he's, he's, he's pulled up to the table, and, and he's going to talk about this friend that he has. Have you, ever, have you ever had a friend do this to you? Hey, let me tell you about this friend that I have. Right? And they begin to describe them, begin to talk about them, tell some stories about them. It's kind of what Matthew's doing for us tonight. So he's going to help us understand who Jesus is. Maybe you think you know Jesus. Maybe you think in your mind, this is old news. Well, I would just encourage you, maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something you missed. Maybe God, in his kindness, wants to speak to something to you specific tonight. Just be open to that, all right? Here we go. Matthew chapter 12. Now, we're actually going to back up because Thomas last week preached my favorite passage, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And this is what it says. and kind of sets the context for Matthew 12. This is what it says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here we have one of the only places where Jesus describes who he is. At the core of his existence, his soul, his heart, he is gentle and he is lowly. He's, he's humble. And what he desires to give you and me is rest. It's it's. Freedom, freedom from our burdens and our exhausting labors, a life characterized by invigorating pursuit rather than anxious toil. Here's an amazing description of who Jesus is, what it means to know him. This is an incredible invitation. And our text tonight flows out of these, these themes. There, there is a life that is heavy laden and burdened, and there is a life following Jesus that is free and full of rest. And so we want to keep those themes in mind as we move into our passage. Now, one might assume that if you're in that environment, if you're hearing Jesus say these words, that they would be met with response, good response, an embrace of what he is offering to the people. But as we'll see in our passage, Matthew 12 begins in, and in the background, there's this growing opposition to Jesus, this growing rejection 
of Jesus. And friends, I just want to note that we should all know one can hear the words of Jesus and maybe even be intrigued by the words of Jesus and yet still utterly reject Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage. This was the Pharisees. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk quickly through the two scenes, and then we're going to talk about observations about who Jesus is. Now, if you're taking notes and you, you love like Thomas's diagrams and pictures that he draws, and I'm not going to do any of that. I'm a terrible drawer, and I can only deal with one iPad, not a couple. So sorry. However, if you're taking notes and you like categories, three categories, the grain field, the synagogue, the servant. Okay? Grain field, synagogue, servant. There you go. All right. First, the grain field. So if you look down at your Bible, Matthew 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry. Now, we don't know where this was. We don't know how they got there, whether they were trespassing, who knows? But what we do know is his disciples were hungry. It's fascinating. Matthew, actually more than any gospel writer, talks about people's hunger. Make it that what you will. But they were hungry. And due to this, they began to pull some of the grain off the stalks to receive nourishment. Now, the Pharisees see this. Now, how they saw it, who knows? Were they hiding? I don't know. Maybe they were following? Don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. But they saw it. And what they did in that moment was accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law. Why? Well, not because of what they were doing. Deuteronomy actually gives people the freedom to do that as they're walking through neighbors' fields. It was because they were doing it on the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest. And in doing so, they were breaking the law. Now, I'm sure you all know this, but by way of reminder, leaders of the Jewish religion, the Pharisees, sought to interpret and instruct the people on what was acceptable and not. They took the law very seriously, and that's, that's a good thing. And, and to their interpretation, on the Sabbath, any work that exercised control or dominion over your environment was unacceptable. And so that led to a whole host of rules and regulations of what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Now, according to their interpretation, Jesus and his disciples were doing something that was wrong. It was breaking the law. Now, Jesus responds to their accusation, and it's fascinating. He gives two examples from their Hebrew Bible that highlight they actually have a problem in their interpretation of what the Sabbath is. So if you look down at it, uh, verse three, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not law for, for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, this is from, taken from 1 Samuel 21, where David is fleeing King Saul, and they're in the process. They go by the, the temporary synagogue that was in Nob, and they go to the priest, and they are starving, and they ask for bread. And so the priest gives them that bread. Now, Jesus is not arguing, hey, see, if somebody's hungry, people can break the law. It's fine. All right? David did it. He's not, he's not saying that. That's not his argument. His argument is this. The very scriptures that instituted the Sabbath also didn't condemn David for this act. 
it, it was a good thing that he did, not a law-breaking thing that he did. And then Jesus continues. He, he builds his argument. Verse five, have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What is Jesus doing? Well, he's pointing out that the priests perform work on the Sabbath, namely preparing the sacrifices that the law required them to sacrifice on the Sabbath, which is a violation of the strict reading of the Sabbath that says we can do no work. So he, he's highlighting and basically beating the Pharisees at their own game, right? He's saying, oh, well, actually, this is what the Bible says. This is what your scriptures say. And, and what he was saying in this is, is that the law itself declared, not only are they not disobeying, but they are honoring the Lord by doing this. In that situation, the priest offering sacrifices on the Sabbath, that's a good thing. Their sacrificing supersedes the Sabbath. Now, verse six, Jesus goes on. I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. Notice it says something and not someone. I, I, would, I would anticipate he says someone, meaning himself, but he says something. So what is this thing that is even greater than the temple? Well, if you think about what the temple was for the Hebrew people, the temple was the connection between God and his people. It represented God's presence with his people. And, and David was God's anointed king. He was, he was representative of the nation of Israel, and he brought blessing to the nation of Israel. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is those things pale in comparison to what's happening now. While David... Being the anointed king of Israel and his actions were important. And while the sacrificial system and the work of the priests was significant and good, something even bigger is happening. And it transcends and informs now the Sabbath. What is happening now is that God has stepped into the world to bring redemption. The great mediator has come to bring mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus points to in verse 7 as he continues. He says, and if you had known what this means, he's quoting the book of Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is, is Lord of the Sabbath. What he's telling them is obeying the Sabbath laws is not the end goal. The Sabbath points us to something. It points us to the merciful rest that Jesus is going to offer his people. It is to be a place where love of God and love of others flourishes, where mercy and kindness are the guiding principles. And the Son of Man, as he says, is so significant. He's so authoritative. What is happening is so great that it has the power to transform how you all interpret or misinterpret the Sabbath. 
Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, not, not them, Jesus. So now we move into scene two. So you see scene one, they're in the grain field, accusation, Jesus responds, and then they keep walking. And they come into the synagogue. And you look at verse nine, this is what he says. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. Healthy like the other. Now there's a couple of things to, to note here. First, the Pharisees... They're trying to trap Jesus, should be obvious to all of us, not to instruct him, but to prove that they're right. Their rightness was the most important thing. They were so committed to their worldview, their understanding, that they would even use an act of kindness as an argument against Jesus. And we'll talk about that more in a minute, but just notice the irony, right? Second, notice Jesus' appeal. Presumably, he, he raises his voice to the crowd in the synagogue, even though he's addressing the Pharisees, and, and he appeals to their sense of common decency, right? Which one of you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit, would, would not help them, even on the Sabbath? And because there was no rejection of this, it can be assumed that, yeah, Everybody would do that, right? Like that, yes, of course, of course we, would, we would do that. And then Jesus lays down the punchline of how much more value are people than animals. Do you see how your, your view of things is, is warped? And so then he concludes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and so we see Jesus, what is he doing? He, he's reinterpreting what the Pharisees understood about the purpose of the Sabbath and the greater call to the law of love. The law of love. And then what's beautiful about this passage, in a, in a twist of grace-filled irony, he showcases the mercy that he's describing. He challenges the Pharisees and then he goes to the man and tells him, stretch out your hand. And he heals him. He restores him. He, he shows him mercy. Now, I find it helpful when reading the Gospels, really all of Scripture, but particularly the Gospels, to, to practice what's called imaginative reading, meaning you're not just reading it as like just this far off distant thing that happened thousands of years ago, but you, you really try to put yourself into what is happening. What, what, what were people thinking during these things? What, what were people smelling? What were people seeing? What, what did the withered hand look like? Have you ever wondered that? What did it, what did it look like? What, what was that man thinking as the Pharisees are accusing Jesus? Like, was he rooting for Jesus? Was he, was he secretly hoping that Jesus would just lay the hammer down so that he could get healed? I don't know. 
But it's, it's, worth, it's worth considering because Matthew is putting all of this in Scripture for a purpose. And, and it's not enough for us to just read the story. Friends, no, in order to understand who Jesus is, we, we have to consider. We have to consider together. What is this telling us? What are we supposed to think in, in these scenes that we, we have here? So I just want to walk through a, a couple of observations that I think we can, we can draw from this. First, observations about the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Now, verse uh, 14, we see their response to the kindness of Jesus. It says, but the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. You notice the, the contrast between verse 13 and verse 14. So verse 13, there's this man who, who is healed and restored by Jesus. Verse 14, these people who observed this went out and conspired how to destroy the person who healed. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? What, what, was, what was fueling their hatred? Think about it. It's odd to us. Well, I think the easy answer is that they loved power and control. The law brought them authority. They could tell people what to do. It, it gave them significance. And, and we see them trying to impose their burdens upon the people. No, this is what you have to do. No, these are the laws that you have to follow. They were even willing to subject themselves to those burdens so that they could be seen as righteous, holy, set apart, respected, obeyed. Now, friends, it's easy to critique the Pharisees, all right? It's not hard to do in Scripture. But I, I think it's right for us to consider how like the Pharisees we can actually be. So here's some questions. How, how do we conspire to destroy Jesus in our hearts? Now, of course, if, you're, if you fancy yourself a follower of Jesus, you'd never say that. But don't miss the underlying sins behind the hatred and opposition of the Pharisees. How often do you trust in, even boast in, your ability to follow God's rules? How often do you inwardly judge other people when they're not doing it the way it should be done as a Christian? How often do you reject Jesus' ways because they just don't make sense to you? Why should I be sexually pure? Why should I commit my time and my money and my resources to, to God? Why should I love my enemy? It doesn't make sense. And so we reject Jesus. And his ways. Have you 
like the Pharisees, decided that Jesus and following him is irrelevant to your life, harmful, or, or just goes against your plan. As we learn about Jesus in Scripture, Scripture has a way of helping us discover how far from Jesus we can actually run. Sometimes willingly, sometimes consciously, but always to our detriment. We can be like the Pharisees who reject Jesus. Which brings us to our final point, which is, the servant, the servant. Matthew relays for us in verse 15. He says, Jesus, aware of this, aware of the Pharisees' opposition and wanting to destroy him, withdrew from there. And many followed him and, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. So let's consider in these last few moments what this section of scripture reveals to us about Jesus and whether we truly know him or not. And we're not left without help. Our, our friend Matthew, who's been sitting here talking to us, he, he helps us here because he, he connects Jesus' actions back to a broader story. He references back to Isaiah 42, the Old Testament, which should serve to deepen our understanding of of what is actually happening here, who this Jesus really is. And so let's, let's read it. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Do you remember in uh, Luke 24, so the very last chapter in Luke, Jesus is risen from the dead and two of his disciples are on the road to Emmaus and, and Jesus comes up to them and joins them on their journey and for some reason they don't recognize him. I don't know how, but they didn't. And, and Jesus begins to tell them and explain to them how all of Scripture is fulfilled and speaks of Jesus. And the, the, these two disciples who, who didn't realize this was Jesus talking, when, when they're reflecting back on that moment after Jesus has left them, they, they, they say, didn't our hearts burn within us in, in, in seeing that, seeing those connections? I, I kind of imagine that maybe this was one of those moments for Matthew. He, he's writing scripture. He's writing down these events and it, it clicks in his mind. Oh my gosh. Isaiah talked about Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling what God promised. Now, what did God promise? Well, 
God promised a Messiah in the Old Testament, and, and the Pharisees would have, would have understand that and, and believed that. But a Messiah, to, in their view, was different than what is being revealed right here. For, for the Israelites, the Messiah meant a conquering king, a ruler. He was going to come to destroy the other nations, bring justice, and restore the nation of Israel to, to power. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. But the book of Isaiah is fascinating because beginning in chapter 41, it begins to reveal a picture of someone who was to be the Lord's servant, God's chosen servant. And this was not a part of Israel's or the Jews' conception of the Messiah. But here we see that it is the Messiah. It is their Savior. Which helps us understand that we do well not to put Jesus in our small little boxes of understanding. Where we just... Yeah, I know about Jesus. Here he is. Let your mind be expanded to understand just, just who Jesus really is. And here's who he is, friends. Here's who he is. Look at this text with me. What we see is Jesus, the gentle and lowly servant. He's a servant. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. So what we see about Jesus is his divine calling. He's been called by God. He's been chosen by almighty God with a divine destiny and purpose. And behold, he, he's beloved by God. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. To reject Jesus whom God the Father is pleased with is to reject, well, God. Behold him as one who is spirit-filled. I will put my spirit Upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This servant has been given God's power and authority. He's not weak, he's powerful. To reject him is to reject the purposes of God. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, he will speak of God's good purpose not just for his covenant people, but for the whole world. That's what the Gentiles. Represented. But friends, what we see also is Jesus, who is he's meek. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. So this servant of God, he's, he's not going to use brute force and quarreling to fight against the Pharisees and, and the opposition. He will often choose to withdraw rather than engage. Why? Because he's weak? Because he's unable? No. Because he knows that his mission is one of a greater triumph. 
He's bringing salvation to the world. And he's not going to do it through brute force. He's going to do it in mercy, with love. Do you see Jesus, the merciful, the chosen servant of God? Did you, did you catch his mercy throughout the passages we were reading? First scene, God's intention for the Sabbath being a place of mercy rather than ritual. Jesus' appeal to kindness towards your fellow man when talking about what we should or shouldn't do on the Sabbath. Jesus' mercy in healing the man with the withered hand. Jesus' mercy in healing. It says all of those who followed him after the Pharisees went out. Friends, the Gospels show us a picture of a Savior who is merciful and kind. What's your functional view of Jesus? Not what you've been told, not what you say you believe, but what, is your, what are your actual thoughts as he relates to you? And we're going to end our time by looking at how he views us. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is what Jesus is like. Now, reeds were commonplace and plentiful. There's literally millions of them in that day and time. And, and if they were bent or bruised, they were practically useless to anyone. Easily discarded for, for a new one. It's like we would use a napkin you use a napkin, are you going to use it again? No. It's got stuff on it. What do you do? Throw it away. Why? There's another one. I just get another napkin. Here's Jesus' heart for you. For those who feel as if they're too broken to be loved, he won't forsake you. He, de he desires to heal you, to restore you. A smoldering wick is similar. It's, it's lost its usefulness. It's now primarily smoke instead of fire. Why, why would you keep a smoldering wick? Just, just get a new one. It, it no longer gives out light. It no longer serves a purpose. It, it, it's probably just going to go out. Friend, Jesus' promise to you is that he will not be the one to do that. He desires to mend the bruised reed and fan into flame the smoldering wick. And here, hopefully, you, you see how important it is to truly know who Jesus is. Because you may have come in here and you may have functionally thought of Jesus as a taskmaster. You may have come in thinking that he just wants to keep getting things from you. Maybe he's the thing that keeps you from getting what you really want. Maybe he doesn't love you. But friends, the Bible reveals Jesus who is merciful and who is 
kind. Now, here's the important reality as we close. We have to see our need for the gospel, our need for Jesus, before you can truly experience the sweetness and goodness of Jesus. Now, some of you are here tonight, and you know you're the bruised reed. You know you're the smoldering wick. How do you know? Because you're deeply aware of and convicted of your willful rebellion against the Lord. You're, you're bruised. And, you, and maybe you've convinced yourself you'll always be broken. The, the sin is it's too powerful. It's, it's too deep in my heart. I've gone too far too many times. I'm of no use to the Lord. Or maybe you've walked in and, and your faith, you know your faith is weak. It's, it's, you're wrestling with unbelief and, and your fear is that God is not going to use, how could he use me when my faith is so weak? I have failed the Lord. And friends, hear the word of the Lord. Let me introduce you to a king who will not break the bruised reed and will not quench the smoldering wick. How do we know? How do we know? Because he became the bruised reed. His life was snuffed out. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Friends, you do not serve a king. Jesus is not a person who is unable to sympathize with your weakness. He knows it. He sees it. And you know how he views you? With compassion. With mercy. That's Jesus. That's who he is. Now, there's also a warning. Because there may be some of you tonight who don't feel your need. And you may think you have everything figured out. You're successful. You're powerful. You're capable. You may even boast in your holiness. And I would warn you in, to take care lest you follow the road of the Pharisees who sought to use God instead of surrender to him, who thought that they could work their way into right relationship with God rather than humble themselves under the mighty hand of God pleading for his mercy. Surrendering to Jesus leads to the rest that we all want. Deep in our hearts, we all want it. But it requires surrender. It requires humility. But when we humble ourselves, what we discover is there's more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke 
upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why are the commands of the Lord not burdensome? Why is his law, the law of freedom and rest, instead of burden and strife? Here it is. It's simple. It's because we're the recipients of God's unending mercy. God has shown unending mercy to us. And now we get to experience that and then seek to obey him and love God and love others in response to that mercy. So friends, this is Jesus. His invitation, his offer is to surrender your life to him. And you will find rest. He is full of mercy. Let's pray. God, in your kindness, you have brought each one of us here. Lord, I don't know most of the stories of everyone here, but God, you do. You know each and every person here. You know their stories. You know their sins. You know their struggles. You know exactly what they need to hear. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would, in these next few moments, that you would speak. And this picture of who Jesus is would not just be something that we nod our heads to, but but we, by the power of your Spirit, would believe and we would experience. We thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you meet us in our lowest, weakest moments. And you pour out grace. You show compassion. Help us to know you more.